Brynmar Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson Johnson Vision, Airy, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. Welcome back to this week's new Retina Radio. And this new Retina Radio is focusing on something that I think is of great interest to many of us, and that is telemedicine in the era of COVID-19. I'm your host, John Kitchens from Retina Associates of Kentucky and Lexington, Kentucky, and I'm joined by some Great panelists tonight. We have with us Steve Houston, who's at the Florida Retina Institute, uh, primarily based out of Orlando. He's also with the Wills Eye Hospital uh, Department of Telemedicine. We're also joined by Dr. John Miller, who's at Mass Ioneer and is the Director of Medical Imaging. And last but not least, Essen Rahimi, who is in Palo Alto and has been uh, involved in telemedicine for a variety of years. I want to thank you all for joining me. As of this date, May 5th, 2020, uh, worldwide, we have 3.6 million cases of coronavirus infected patients with 256,000 deaths. In the United States, we've crossed over 1.2 million cases with 71,000 deaths. I'd like to start off with our guests and uh, invite each of you to kind of talk a little bit about the general conditions in your area. Steve, you're in an interesting area in Orlando, Florida, and in Florida in general, where they've started to lose a lot of the restrictions. Uh, how is coronavirus impacting uh, overall life in Orlando? We were pretty, pretty much uh, just like the rest of the country had early lockdown actually in Orlando before the actual state of Florida locked down. So in our general area, we were about a week or two ahead of the general Florida lockdown. So um, people have been paying attention to it and, you know, it's been staying home. So I think our anticipated amount of cases has really the peak never really got to what they expected. So that's been, you know, partly from everyone's, um, staying home and, and, and not going out uh, during this time. So in Orlando in general, we've uh, had it fairly milder, uh, at least at this point in time, than say some of the other areas uh, in the Northeast and Chicago, New Orleans and those areas. So overall, it's not been you know, too bad at this point. And Steve, what about your practice in general? How's your practice doing? Are you back to elective cases? Are you back to a full lineup of patients? So I would say we had been down in volume in the clinics by about uh, 50 to 60% uh, volume uh, at this point. It's been kind of steady at that range. Um, regarding you know patients in clinic, it's a combination. Some still are scared to come out of their house, but a lot of the patients that need their treatments with injections and other things are still coming in in acute cases. Um, Regarding surgery, we have been uh, restricted from elective surgeries. However, Florida is entering into that phase one of reopening, and this week is the first week that we're starting to do elective cases again. So uh, my partners operated Monday and Tuesday, and I'm actually in the operating room tomorrow with uh, three cases, elective cases at this point. 
That being said, the hospitals are doing pre-COVID-19 or pre-op COVID-19 testing uh, that needs to be negative uh, prior to surgery. And we're still taking all the precautions in the operating room from appropriate PPE. Hassan, you were at the beginning of this uh, being in the Northwest and in in San Francisco, Palo Alto area. uh, How is coronavirus impacting your day-to-day life and then your practice? Yeah, I mean, I'll echo what Steve said and take it a little further. I think the Bay Area, relative to the rest of the country, was probably extremely uh, aggressive in terms of locking down. I think a lot of that was owed to the Governor Newsom, as well as the the mayor of San Francisco, um, declaring the state of emergency really before anywhere else had, uh, even before he even had a first case here. So for us, um, in this part of the, the country, we've been dealing with this now for almost a little bit over two months right now. So um, it's been uh, affecting practices, but I think we're, we've sort of hit our stride right now uh, where we learn to kind of uh, modify and adjust accordingly. And I'm sure we're going to get into discussing a lot of this in detail later. But um, like Steve mentioned, a, a lot of what we've been dealing with is prioritizing injection patients, things that are urgent, emergent, um, even within our injection patients, those that we, we prioritize a little bit higher monocular patients, uh, AMD patients, those that we know can't really extend much uh, longer due to disease reactivation. Um, sometimes I've been a little bit more lenient with some of our diabetic patients uh, with DME, maybe they're concerned due to being immunocompromised for infection risk. We've kind of been working a lot of this over the phone with telemedicine. Um, surgeries have been down drastically like with everywhere else in the country, but we are also entering that phase starting this week, in fact, where uh, we are starting to slowly ramp up with some of these cases, but similar to what Steve said with Florida, everybody has to now undergo preoperative uh, COVID testing. So when you sign up a case, they go in same day, get the nasal swabs done, and uh, we can get a rapid turnaround. We get the results same day, uh, clear them for surgery. And John, last but not least, Boston's been tremendously hard hit, maybe second in the U.S. to New York, maybe New Jersey. Uh, Describe the conditions there. Yeah, I mean, it's been a um, very tough situation at all the uh, Massachusetts and New England hospitals, uh, particularly in Boston. We've uh, had a lot of our staff redeployed uh, to Mass General and Brigham to kind of help out in the ICU. So some of the Nurses and technicians we work with every day are, have been sent over. And so we're a little bit light staffed. And as a result, they really have been encouraged to have our clinics severely, uh, significantly down booked. Uh, surgeries have still been fairly steady. We've seen some, uh, a lot more referrals from the community just because we are open for, uh, for these rental detachments and a little bit higher complexity because I think patients are presenting a little later for their detachments. But um, in general, it's been uh, quite a big change and we're slowly starting to ramp up as similar to Steve and Hassan said uh, over the last week or so. What do you, what would you estimate your clinic volumes at right now, John? Um, I would say it's about uh, 30 to 50% of, of usual. So um, we're still seeing about 20, uh, 20 or so per session, uh, but I'm trying to consolidate some of my multiple week sessions down to, to one or two in order to minimize uh, trips into the hospital and minimize exposure for, for both the staff and the patients. So let's jump right into the telemedicine and we'll stick with you, John. What, what should telemedicine be for a retina practice in this time frame, and then going forward from this time frame? Is it going to look very similar to what we're starting to see? How is it going to, do you think it, yeah. it should play out? I think, you know, traditionally we think of telemedicine as uh, population-based screening and helping particularly in remote or rural areas or places with poor access or third world. 
And I think telemedicine can kind of evolve or really it's kind of a paradigm shift now that we can't even get our, our established patients into the office because of social distancing practices and other, other means. I think it's really a, you can leverage the, those same principles into uh, providing care for our own patients, both either at, at our own offices and more flexible hours or in more testing locations through sort of a hybrid telemedicine approach. So I think telemedicine is going to be really critical getting through this post-virus uh, surge as, as p- patients are more willing to come back to the office or come back in for their testing as some of the fear subsides. There's going to be a, a really big surge of, of patients, I think, to retina particularly and ophthalmology in general. Steve, I'll go to you. Why do we need telemedicine right now in this COVID-19 era? What, what is that going to add to us, the apparent, and maybe some of the things that we're not able to see? I mean, I think, you know, the way in my head, and, and I think John and Hassan would reiterate this, is, you know, thinking about the old way that we did things, where we had, you know, an extremely packed waiting rooms. We had average wait times around the country for retina are going to be 90 minutes, sometimes up to two hours or more. Um, patients, inter- you know, interacting with other patients, patients with interacting with multiple staff members. And the problem is, is, you know, even though our clinics are down right now and we can appropriately social distance patients in clinic, the question becomes, as we ramp up, how do we do that? Can we go back to the old way? And I would say that, you know, we we can't just go back to the old way that we did things in the past. So what we talk about is kind of the new normal. And I think that's kind of a buzz phrase, you know, in everything right now is this quote unquote new normal. And what does the new normal look like? You know, that's what, you know, those of us thinking about this are trying to, you know, navigate into. There's not a right or wrong answer, or I don't think anybody knows this answer, but For retina clinics, I mean, what we can already see is we're taking standard precautionary measures, you know, the having people, patients wait in cars, not having family members come in, uh, minimizing patients in waiting rooms, uh, you know, separating chairs in waiting rooms by appropriate uh, distances. You know, these are all things that most people are taking, you know, wearing masks for the staff, you know, good hand hygiene, you know, but we're starting to think about how can we do that, but then start to talk about that flow through clinic once we start to increase and ramp up patients. How can we get the average visit from 30, you know, down to 30 minutes or less? How can we make sure that we can come up with some new paradigms and protocols to help us deal with this potential surge of patients, but then get them into our clinics and through clinics in a safe manner? So that's kind of where I think that some of the telemedicine aspects we'll talk about in this, in this uh, current podcast, you know, can help us deal with this new normal and, and make up for, you know, kind of the old way we were doing things. Hassan, Steve just kind of mentioned what, what he envisions this being for the COVID-19 era post COVID-19. Do you think this has staying power? Is this going to be something that we're going to see implemented? And if so, what, what's going to be the benefits in that environment? It's a, it's, a, it's a great question. It's, it's, a, it's a great talking point because uh, eventually we, we all hope this does subside. The, the concern for uh, getting an infection uh, should hopefully go down as therapies come around, as hopefully a vaccine comes around in the next 12 to 18 months. We can all uh, hope for the best. But uh, I, we all strongly believe here that telemedicine is staying power. And a large reason for that is even pre-COVID-19, there were those of us who felt that our field had evolved to the point where telemedicine 
was appropriate and necessary for a lot of the patients that we see on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, and a large reason for that is the technology has now caught up uh, the same way, you know, the analogy I give is think about cancer patients maybe going in to see their oncologists and rather than going in for all these routine visits, maybe they just go to the lab, they go to radiology suite, they get their follow-up CT scan, the oncologist can follow up with these variables and get in touch with the patient and then determine what is the, the next course of action or what's the next appropriate time frame to be retested. And we have those capabilities in ophthalmology. We just have kind of lagged and lagged behind the curve because we always felt that a lot of these visits were necessary to be done in person. I think we all agree now, given how, you know, how much the technology is caught up when you talk about wide field imaging, uh, high resolution OCT, we're going to have wide field uh, OCT as well coming on, on board. We have home OCT monitoring, which I'm sure we're going to talk about here. All these technologies play a role and, and those are the, our equivalent of uh, lab results of a patient going to the lab and getting their testing and then we can follow up with it. Uh, we can now video conference with patients and go over their results real time, showing them their images and showing them how they're doing and then determine is it necessary for a patient to come in or to you know, go to a six month or one year interval to come back in and, and do their testing. And it, it's in, in some regard, the COVID came around and it, it created this necessity that telemedicine is around uh, because of patients' concerns for infection. And we've all sort of made it work in our practices, at least initially, I think we'd all agree it was a little bit clunky. Uh, you know, at least in retina, you, you, I do a video visit with a patient and unless it's a red eye, we're not, we're not doing much other than that interaction, just making sure that they're stable, that something hasn't changed to necessitate them coming in. Uh, but moving forward, and this is the staying power of telemedicine, it's, it's really more about flexibility for patients. Uh, if you think about a lot of our patients, especially that diabetic population, patients with retinal tears, holes, lattice detachments, et cetera, they're working uh, age patients. Not everyone's available to come in during working hours. Maybe they want to be able to come into the office after hours or on the weekend. They can come in, get their OCT, their optos, go home. We can schedule a follow-up video visit or, or televisit even long after there's uh, concerns of COVID have subsided. So it's moving initially in this period, it's more about concern for infection. Yes, I think moving forward and what's really going to give us the staying power is the idea of flexibility uh, for patients and working in their visits uh, with their with their actual working and personal lives. Yeah. Son, take just a minute to describe your practice and what you're doing presently in telemedicine or what you have planned to do in telemedicine. Yeah, so and I mentioned we, we've had now almost two months of kind of working through this. In the beginning, it was like, okay, let's just look at our schedule and see maybe who's not an urgent matter and we can follow up with a phone call or a video visit. I'm starting to find that it was good to kind of hold us and, and get us through this period, but at least moving forward, what do we want this to be? We want it to be a useful encounter, a really useful visit, something that gets educational for the patient and something that we obtain useful objective information on how their condition is doing. So what we are doing now is implementing protocols where a lot of our routine follow-ups, and, and I think the low-hanging fruit here is, dry AMD patients, uh, diabetic retinopathy follow-up patients, plaquenil screenings. Uh, we are offering them the opportunity in advance. Of, they, they still have the option to come in and see uh, the providers should they wish. We're not going to take that away from them. Uh, but I think a lot of this, Steve has mentioned this before, and I'm sure we'll talk to it again, is, is how you, you phrase it and how you offer that opportunity for a patient. Um, I think the, the traditional uh, term telemedicine, it, it, you know, maybe people don't necessarily like it, or, or like John said, think about it in terms of population screening. That's not really what we envision this moving forward. This is more about a hybrid tele-eye care type uh, of approach moving forward where they have the option to come in 
on, on a time where they'd like, where we have kind of some fixed slots in the clinic where the photographers are there, the technicians are there, they can get the necessary testing. So for an AMD patient, they get their OCT, they get their uh, fundus photos. If it's a diabetic patient, they get their photos in the OCT. If it's a platinum patient, they do the visual fields in the OCT. Um, they'd go home. We'd then set up a follow-up phone call or a video visit uh, where then I can review over the images uh, and actually in real time, depending on what interface you're using, uh, we use WebEx. That's, that's what we have access to. Others have access to Zoom. That's good in proximity. We can potentially screen share with the patient and show them these are your images. You're doing fine. This looks stable compared to previously. We have remote access capabilities to do that. Um, whereas, and, and the other neat little part for integration here is just like we're all involved in some ad boards that we do virtually. There's this educational component where we have PowerPoints, we're going through slides. I've already created, at least in our practice, these educational slides, decks on AMD, on DR, on Platinum, for example, so that during the course of that video visit with the patient, you're going through and educating them as well too. And I've had like excellent feedback. The patients love that so far. And I, I can see that really kind of taking hold and, and, and really staying here moving forward. And the other reason I feel confident in saying that is one of the criticisms of telemedicine has long been okay, if you're going to do remote monitoring and maybe remote image interpretation and you send out a report, how do you close that loop? How do you, how do you ensure that that patient does come in or does follow the recommendations that you, you give them? And I think this is where this hybrid approach really kind of ties it together nicely because that one-on-one that -on -one interaction, and ideally, I think it, when it's over video, it works really well, just that face-to-face -face interaction, that one-on-one that -on -one private time. But even I've noticed it with the phone call too, um, just having that personalized approach I've had 100% follow-up success rate. Like if I saw something that was like, this looks like PDR, or no, this actually looks like wet AMD. This patient needs to come in, and I speak with them. They come in, and I haven't had anybody fall off thus far. So that that uh, makes me very optimistic for the way it's going to be moving forward. In the patients that you said you approached, um, how many, what percentage would you say accept it off the bat when it's kind of given to them the option to do the telemedicine? I think in the very, very beginning, like when especially in the Bay Area, I feel like our, our population here is maybe extremely uh, compliant, if you will, people in the Northwest. So everyone wanted to do, you know, their televisits and their and their phone call and video visits. And then I think as we, we felt a little bit more comfortable, we were flattening the curve and we continued to offer that option. I felt like it maybe turned into a 50-50 mix. I've had some patients tell me, well, you know, like I'm used to the doctor looking inside my eye or doing the OCT testing. So I want to come in and still do that. Um, I think as we rebrand what telemedicine is and really refine what these protocols are and, and, and move them forward, I actually feel like that's going to go up probably more closer to three quarters is going to be my guess. You'll always have some patients that still, no matter what, they want to come in and they want to see their doctor and that's fine. We're not trying to take that away at all, but um, especially though post COVID we're talking about social distancing and, and every retina specialist out there I've talked to is we are worried about the surge that's coming. All of our referral bases have not been working. We've, we've all been working, right? We're, we're taking care of the urgent and emergent cases, but the referral bases, our optometrists, our ophthalmologists, they are not working. They are all going to start coming back to their practices. And a lot of that is going to start coming to us. And I know a lot of us are already we're sort of disaster planning. Well, we're supposed to be social distancing. Our clinics are supposed to be a certain number of size, but we know that there is this backflow that's coming. And I can already see it starting like, this week's clinic, you had asked about, asked John, like, what percent are you at? I'm about like 50, 60%. I already looked at next week's clinic. We're close to like 75, 80%. And we, we're, we don't necessarily want to be, right? So we're really trying to space out these visits and figure out how do we deal with the oncoming surge. 
And then, you know, I'll kind of touch on what it's, you know, the, the key thing with what we're talking about telemedicine is really trying to simulate in-office visits so that we can provide the ability to kind of make these complex decisions that we have for retina patients. So I think that's number one is it's much different than just doing a audio video call with the patient and seeing a video of them and trying to do anything. And this, this is a complex uh, protocol to get patients in, get the normal imaging and data you need and we need to make these complex decisions. I think that's the big you know, distinguishing feature, which what, what, what we call hybrid tele-eye care is to really make sure we get that data. And then Asan touched on an important point is the education. Um, you know, with these audio video uh, sophisticated apps, I mean, we're, we're even doing things in our practice at Florida Retina Institute where when the patient's in virtual waiting room, we now have videos of, you know, diabetic retinopathy in education. We have videos for, you know, different services that they may be benefited for. So there's many new opportunities that we have to not only maybe, you know, advertise practice, talk about the practice, or, you know, talking about their education from their disease process that, that virtual allows us to, to have and, and is a very sophisticated platform. Um, you know, so when we look at it, I mean, that's kind of the big distinction I've been there uh, that we've been talking about is when we think of telemedicine, how can we make this the best experience for patients so that they see this as an extension of our clinics and see this as, you know, on par or similar to what they would get in clinic. Um, and so, you know, Sam brings up, you know, all the, those excellent points. I think one thing to what Steve said too, it's, we had talked about this, all three of us is I would actually argue some of our patients feel like they're getting even better care because you have that one-on-one -on -one time with them from a, a video phone. Sometimes we're at home. We don't feel rushed at all. Like you do in the clinic where maybe you're, you got a 60 patient clinic. You have only X amount of minutes to be with the patient. So I've had some patients tell me they actually, they love this. They feel like they have way more one-on-one -on -one time with their doctor to, get all their questions answered and really have that personal interaction. Sorry, go ahead, John. Oh, I was just yes, gonna, so, yeah. Go, go ahead, ahead, John. I was just going to add that, uh, you know, one big change with screening is I don't think anyone would have thought we'd be doing large uh, telemedicine for AMD and some of the conditions that assignment. I mean, that's really, this was always thought of as really a diabetic retinopathy, diabetic eye disease screening tool. And uh, now with kind of leveraging a hybrid approach with the OCT and the screen share, I think it's really great for AMD. I mean, you've got this uh, really highly magnified image of their OCT right on the screen in front of them. You can point to things. You, you've got that one-on-one -on -one FaceTime. So that's been really helpful. I've gotten really good feedback from my patients. One other question you asked earlier, John, was about who can do this in the clinic. I think there's a lot you have to be, we're trying to be very flexible and creative in how we offer it to the patients. So we do do the virtual visit at home if they're capable with uh, video technology, Zoom. But if for patients that are resistant to that, particularly the elderly AMD folks, we also have purchased iPads and have those readily available in the testing centers. So such that when they come in for the OCT and the photos, I can directly link to the tech and they can actually help the patient who would otherwise be unable to handle, you know, the technology and work through the, the, the video visit. So that's allowed me to add it to even more patients than I would have expected originally. And John brings up a big point. You know, we've been doing this since about a week, mid-March, um, you know, doing these type of hybrid visits. And one of the early things we saw is, like, John, you were talking about how many patients actually want to do this. And I would say initially when we just 
had people talking about, oh, it's a telemedicine. And a lot of patients were like, eh, no, I'm not really interested. But then once I sat down and, and talked to my staff to identify the benefits of it, you know, the higher throughput, meaning they get in through the clinic in 10 to 15 minutes, they interact with one technician, that technician takes them through the whole process from, you know, vision, pressure, no dilation, and then they go, the same technician does the optos and OCT, and then, you know, sends them out. Uh, so highlighting the key pertinent features of why this may be beneficial for them from a safety and efficiency standpoint was, you know, a critical part to increasing the you know, potential adoption. In addition, I also saw that obviously we deal with some elderly, you know, an elderly population. And so there are issues with technology. You know, some of us have, you know, older patients and parents and everything that are fine with technology, but there's a large percentage that are not. And so often when we were first starting this, we would ask if they had an email address, smartphone, iPad, computer. And then if they'd said no, then they weren't a candidate for this. But we've changed that now where that was my initial protocol. But as I saw that that restricted a lot of people, I have several different options where they can come in and when they do this hybrid and in the clinic, they have the, the opportunity to connect with me live straight from the clinic, you know, right at the end of their, their short visit there. Or they can go home and connect with me at the convenience of, our, of their own home. When we get to the billing, we can also talk about, you know, that these days we can also do telephone visit for those patients as well if they don't have access to devices. But, you know, there's multiple ways that we can accommodate this, to, even if patients aren't comfortable or familiar with technology. So let's back up for a second. Steve, I want to find out on a more granular level, what does this look like in your practice? Like walk me through how you do this in your, in your practice. You've got a, a large practice, lots of retina specialists, multiple offices throughout central and north central Florida. Yeah. Do you use clinics that you're using? Tell, tell me everything. Yeah. So, you know, the funny thing was, is before coronavirus, we were actually – uh, in talks with a lot of primary care doctors uh, to send their diabetic patients into our empty offices uh, with a technician to do imaging and then for us to screen them. And so we were already thinking about what do we do with a lot of these empty offices that may only have a doctor in them one, two, three days a week, and you might have a day, two, or even more that it's empty. And we have devices, optos, OCTs in those offices. So when COVID-19 started, you know, the first thing on my mind back when CMS released their March 6th, on March 6th, their you know, regulation changes was immediately went to my partners and say, hey, we talked about using these empty offices. Hey, why don't we start doing a hybrid telemedicine, telemedicine approach here? Okay, mm -hmm. so that was the first step where we identified the offices and said, Hey, we're going to start bringing patients into these offices and, um, you know, see them in this manner. So we've already within about a week of the regulation changes, we had already identified and had the workflows set up to uh, roll this out to eight of our offices throughout Northeast and central Florida, where, like I said before, we have a one to two technicians at those offices and, we have the patients come in 10 to 15 minutes and do, you know, what we all have just you know, talked about. Um, in my clinic, Op you know, those pictures on every single person, so Steve. I, I, so 
I, I'll speak for me, but I think Hassan and John would be, you know, on, on the same page. I think that, op, you know, wide field imaging and we use Optos in all our offices is a critical component of this. Uh, I think as retina specialists to provide that complex care, a view of just the macula or nerve and, and you know, not the highest quality or, or potentially high ungradable images, um, you know, is critical. So for us, we use Optos wide field imaging for this uh, because I feel I get reliable images. My technicians can obtain reliable undilated images that I can see, you know, a large amount of the, the posterior aspect of the eye with good quality. And then also, um, you know, I can utilize the Optos advanced software from home to, you know, manipulate the images and really zoom in as needed. Um, so I think it is, you know, critical to have uh, wide field imaging if we're going to make these complex decisions so that we feel we are covering most of that kind of uh, simulated dilated exam. Obviously, we talked about before patients that may not may be good for this, ones that not may not be is you know, obviously ones that may need a scleral depressed exam. And so, you know, acute PVDs or, you know, some of the PVD follow-ups I wouldn't use it for, but, you know, with some of the more posterior pathology, but then wanting to see the periphery, I think is important as well. What about, want to be what about patients that may need a treatment like wet AMD patients that are uh, six weeks or eight weeks out and you're, you know, you're doing an as needed treatment schedule or whatnot, would you bring a patient that potentially could need treatment into um, something like this? So I, I'm, I'm more on the treat and extend. Um, you know, the, the PR, PRN ones I do are after they've proved and gone out to three months and then I will sometimes PRN them. Um, so for treat and extend, I'm still keeping them in clinic and seeing those patients uh, in clinic because they're often going to get an injection. That being said, I, I do, I have already, you know, we've, we've seen several hundred patients already in our practice with this hybrid model over the past six weeks, eight weeks or so. And I do see, I, I have been seeing some of my four or six month you know, PRN patients that have been, you know, have wet AMD, but have been stable for a period of time without an injection. And so in that case, if that patient does, you know, have a new conversion back to, you know, wet AMD, I, I would bring them to, you know, the closest off or their office, either, you know, the next day or, or, you know, within a reasonable time frame, just like if they're referred over from an outside practice. And then we would do the uh, procedure. You could have them come same day. Uh, there's, you know, just would need to navigate those billing issues in the way of, um, you know, billing that correctly. But uh, usually we're at, we're at these offices a couple times a week. So if they come in on a Monday and they have a new conversion and I talk to them and I bring them in on, you know, Tuesday or Wednesday, um, you know, it's just like if they're diagnosed at the, you know, uh, at their uh, ophthalmology optometry office and were sent to us within a few days. So uh, definitely, you know, seeing the patients within 24 to 48 hours, usually I review the images within 24 hours. So if someone does have a new conversion, you know, we're on the phone with them, you know, immediately to kind of bring them in. And at the time of their visit, Steve, do you set up that phone call interaction and do you have the ability um, to have a patient, as John alluded to, stay around and have a technician help with that one-on-one? -on -one? How do you handle that communication? Step? Yeah, I mean, so, so there's two ways that I do it. I, I have my big vision, with, uh, and I think those on this call are, are very similar, is that I, I see this as you know, two ways. You can either do kind of a parallel clinic where you're running your in-office clinic just as you normally would, and then you have telemedicine patients at a different office, 
that are being seen and then can connect with you while you're running your regular in-office business. So I have my staff all trained on, you know, Zoom and you know, being able to bring up the images from our remote offices so that they'll pull it up at my workstation. Just like I was going there to review the next patient, I review it and then I can, you know, the patient's already up on the screen and I'll do a quick call with them and then just go on to my, my normal, you know, in-office procedure. And so that's how I do it if there's a parallel clinic. The other is where you can kind of separate it, okay? And that's where I will maybe see patients in the morning, you know, in office. And then I may take, do the afternoon where I'm doing, you know, other things, research, or may dedicate that just to doing all the telemedicine, okay? And that's where, you know, I can split it up. And really uh, what we found in our practice is it's very physician dependent on how they want to do it. So I think you have to just, you know, work this out with your practice and the physicians in your practice and see if they want to do it in parallel with their regular clinic or if they would like to just, you know, take an hour or two certain days of the week and do it. So, you know, there's a lot of flexibility. And Asan talked about flexibility and convenience for the patients. I would say there's also flex a flexibility and convenience factor for the physicians as well. So with the virtual or for the, like the parallel clinic, the thing is, is with the social distancing that's needed, the way I see it is if I have 65 patients say this Friday and I can convert 15 of those more chronic disease follow-up into telemedicine, now I've been able to decrease down to 50 patients, can socially distance those better because they're often injections. And then I see the other ones via telemedicine. So I've actually seen the same amount of patients, but now I'm using the clinic uh, only seeing, you know, 50 out of the 65, but end up, you know, having the revenue of the 65 patients and seeing those patients as well. So you can look at it from, you know, from a practice standpoint, questions about that, you know, is you can actually still generate your revenues while doing the social distancing. So instead of working from 6am to 10pm trying to, you know, deal with the surge, we can potentially see more patients, but do it in a more, uh, you know, a different type of protocol or, or, or a different type of shift. Um, for what we're used to by doing a virtual type of clinic with it. And the patients probably are more comfortable coming in. I mean, I think I've seen a lot more acceptance because they know they're coming generally to less heavily booked sessions uh, or em even empty clinics. And there is a lot of fear about, you know, coming into the, the big, they, they know how busy we used to be and they, they don't really want to be around those heavy waiting rooms. Sure. John, you're, at a, you're in a different situation. You're at a tertiary care hospital at Mass Sinai. How are you integrating telemedicine into your practice? Yeah, I think, you know, we are, uh, we're not, we are moving along and I think we're doing very well for the size of the organization. Uh, I think Steve and a retina only practice and uh, has really done a, a amazing job uh, kind of implementing it with his group and Hassan as well. Uh, at at uh, Mass Ioneer and with Partners Healthcare in general, we uh, were initially very focused on the surge and sort of uh, redeployment of our staff and diversion clinics. You know, we have a whole setup so that if the emergency, eye emergency room got overflowed, we'd be able to handle the extra patients. I think a lot of our administrative organizational focus was on patient surge initially, uh, but we were, you know, as soon as the shutdown kind of happened, we've been leveraging the virtual visits. Uh, we've been using, I, I typically have one to two virtual visit sessions per week that I give my secretary a few weeks ahead. So that's where we, you know, kind of bring all the telemedicine visits from all the different locations together and to, to run the virtual visits and then testing would occur either same day or earlier in the week or prior to those sessions. I think from an organization, it, being in a bigger institution, there are some roadblocks or different opinions from other specialties. And so I think this hybrid approach is very specific in some ways to retina and with the OCT in the wide field. And it's, it is a little bit of a paradigm shift from what 
some of the other uh, specialties within a large organization would be used to or, or expect. But I think in general, the buy-in has been good and I'm starting to see some of my partners interested in, and participating as well. Um, something that, that I've been doing myself for about four or five weeks. Yeah, unlike Steve, you're bringing these patients into the main Mass Ioneer building to do their imaging, and then at a separate time and date, you're doing, setting up a call I'm doing with them. A few different things. So, uh, I mean, I am doing the main building, but I would say that there is some fear with coming to the main building because it's right next to Mass General Hospital, and you're coming into the city, and people are just more nervous about that. So, we are leveraging the satellite offices as well, which are much more lightly booked. So, we have been opening up testing appointments at those locations, you know, taking a stock of what else is scheduled there. A lot of my comprehensive colleagues are canceled or are very, you know, minimal clinics. So we've been able to use some of those sessions to have patients come in for testing outside of the city, not to their usual point of access, but basically reassuring them that, you know, this is a safer place for you to get the same imaging and then you can review it very easily with the doctor. And a lot of people very early on, you know, about a month ago, people were more accepting of that. I think Lately, there seems to be more comfort with coming into the main office or my other downtown offices by the Brigham uh, in Brookline is also kind of in the city. Uh, and that's I've used that on days where I've either canceled the afternoon session, like Steve said, I just have testing only and then I'll do virtual visits. But each week is a little bit different based on my call schedule and OR and everything else. And are, uh, when you bring these patients in, one technician sees the patient, vision, standard workup, dilation and then OCT and optos and then sends them on their way. How does that, what does that look like? I think it depends a little bit on the location, but in general uh, they are still usually seeing two people because I have a a workup tech and we have dedicated photographers that run all the, all the imaging at at our locations or testing tech. So they are usually seeing two people, but I think the duration of the contact is quite low and everyone at our, uh, hospital is required to wear masks. And so I think in general, patients have felt uh, very safe. There are some occasional injection patients who have requested to not get imaging uh, or such. But I think in, in general, with the virtual visits, I've been doing an undilated exam like Steve, a vision and a pressure, and then uh, ultra wide field fundus photo with an OCT. Let's get into the specifics of how you're actually reviewing the images. Are you going online uh, through a virtual client? Are you using like the wide field viewing software? And then what do you use to reach out and contact those patients, John? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really important point. I think every practice has different, there are, there are a lot of cloud-based solutions so that you could, you could log into the Optos viewer or, or um, there are some other access with Zeiss and Topcon and Heidelberg, but uh, I typically am using the multimodal viewer for our hospital, uh, which is a Synergy platform. And I would be accessing that directly from my um, Citrix login to, to our EMR. So that, that's how I'm viewing the test, the same as I, as I do basically in the clinic, uh, but just from home via my laptop. And then I'm using Zoom uh, is the uh, sort of certified platform that my organization has chosen uh, to, to use. And my secretary actually can schedule the patient into a virtual waiting room. And then I can, as I move from patient to patient, I can uh, bring the patient in or out uh, and kind of move along. And I would agree with what Hassan said that in general, people have been very happy with the one-on-one. I think we seem much less distracted. There's more FaceTime. I'm not, I don't have my back to them or my shoulder to them while I'm typing furiously at the computer, uh, writing down their exam and other options. So it's been good. Two questions for you, John. Do you have a scribe on the line with you and is Zoom HIPAA compliant? 
So scribe, um, I've been investigating that, but we have not yet executed that. Typically my scribe, if it's not my usual session day is often assigned to other activities, either in-house clinics or, or teching. So uh, my virtual visit clinic is currently happening and what used to be my admin time has been garbled up. So the scribe's not available at that time, but I think it could be helpful uh, so that you could focus more on just reviewing the imaging or uh, directly at the patient. But in general, uh, I found it, it's not been necessary and I've been able to document uh, fairly quickly. And then I also been able to document after the fact. I think in general, we have to document a little bit less with telemedicine. We're not entering a lot of exam details. We're really just describing the condition and the imaging results. Uh, your second question was about HIPAA with Zoom. I believe if you configure it correctly with the healthcare setting, it is HIPAA compliant. But I think this is, there are some concerns around security and all of these different platforms and FaceTime and some other options that are out there. I think in general, regulations have been significantly re reduced just because we're trying to take care of these patients and people understand that there is a little bit of risk that we're all taking uh, with these sort of privacy issues. But I think in general, it's, uh, it's been fine and we're doing the best we can. Hassan, how do you view your images and um, how do you communicate with patients software-wise? Same exact setup as with John, because I'm in a big, large, uh, multi-specialty type hospital system. We have like 1,300 different doctors, uh, close to 50 ophthalmologists, optometrists. So we all log in remotely with our Citrix. Uh, I can then access our Heidelberg uh, viewing software remotely. I can, for OCTs, I can get on and see the log into the Optos uh, cloud uh, uh, base system to go over, you know, fundus photos that way as well too. And then earlier on in this process, again, John mentioned when, you know, regulations were largely lifted because out of necessity, our, our doctors were doing all sorts of things. We were doing FaceTime, Doximity, uh, Zoom, WebEx. I think uh, now Epic has their own uh, system is like in Canto, which we, were, we got our own iPads and, and people have started to transition towards using that. Um, I've been using a lot of uh, WebEx myself, haven't had any issues. I think the issue of HIPAA compliance is obviously a very important one. We've all seen it in the news now. A lot of these, they call them Zoom bombings, have been happening. And, you know, third parties are able to get access to uh, certain teaching sessions or whatnot and, and, and spread hate and vitriol and that type of stuff. Hopefully, I haven't had anything like that happen to me, but I think that is a real concern. Uh, I'm aware, I think Zoom does have an additional interface, I think, that is HIPAA compliant, that is meant to be targeted towards practices for an additional cost. I haven't actually uh, interacted with that. I've only used the, the free version when I was using it, but uh, these are all real uh, important questions uh, to solve moving forward. Again, if, if we really want this to have staying power here, um, but at least when I'm going over the images with the patient, I, I do a lot of it over WebEx. It, it integrates very nicely for uh, sharing images, for sharing over PowerPoint educational slides, and uh, it's gone pretty well so far. And Steve, I'm coming to you with the same question. How do you review your images, EHR from home, and then how do you communicate with the patients? Yeah, so I mean, you know, when we talk about, you know, these protocols, uh, you know, I think the, the key thing that, that we need to get across too is that, you know, just having the device and then, you know, the imaging devices and then having a video conferencing app is just the beginning of the iceberg. There's so many more kind of workflow issues and everything else that goes into setting up a, um, a good type of uh, workflow for this type of thing. So, you know, I think we'd be at a disservice telling everyone just to go get, you know, an Optos and a video, you know, app and just start doing this. I think, you know, talking to other practices that are doing it and reaching out and kind of getting guidance on it to really help 
um, you know, with the workflow processes that all of us have been dealing with for the last few months is going to be important as we kind of spread this out. Going to the image viewing, uh, so ours is a little different. I mean, we're in private practice, so we don't have a huge, you know, imaging network um, software. So really, I worked with our IT department and Optos and Heidelberg to set up our, our, our remote access viewing. So Optos has two options. You can do, you know, obviously the Optos Cloud Advanced, which I think is an excellent option for a lot of people because it allows you to, you know, view the images from anywhere. Um, then the other is a VPN. And so what we've done is set up a, a VPN to allow me just to hook into the VPN on my home computer. And then I pull up Optos uh, software at each of our offices that have this. And then same thing with the OCT. So uh, the OCTs I can scroll through just like I would in clinic. The Optos I can, you know, uh, manipulate the images just as I would. I also uh, get access, have access to, we use uh, MD IntelliChart. And so the nice thing is I usually get um, comparison from, uh, from our Heidelberg. So uh, that one page, uh, you know, printout of last visit, this visit with the comparison, I find is also very nice because I can just pull that up really quickly in, in MDI. And then if there's anything on there that looks suspicious, I'll go directly to the images and, and review as well. Um, so that's the way I do image viewing. Uh, and that's, is really, it really depends on where, what kind of uh, setting you're in, you know, academic, hospital, private practice, there's gonna be different ways to do this and different ways that each institution or practice needs to do it. So, you know, that's where you need to you know, talk with your administrators and, and practice to determine what's the best solution for you from that regard. Regarding, uh, we use Zoom as well. Um, I, when this first started, I looked at all the different options and at, I, I think that Zoom, none of, so the other thing is none of these, uh, none of these are perfect. There's not a perfect solution out there for eye care uh, uh, or just medicine, medical telemedicine in general. Um, but Zoom had a, a, all the features that I kind of, that we were looking for. You know, some of the uh, easier apps such as FaceTime or Doximity, you know, can, can really conveniently connect with the patient, but it doesn't provide the experience that I feel that are needed in these visits. So you know, if you're just trying to do some quick visits like that, those are good to connect with patients. But when we've talked about setting up this type of system, we're really looking at patient experience with this uh, as well. So it's not just a, oh, can I connect with the patient? What kind of experience can our practice provide to patients? And, you know, I think part of the ability to share screen and have, you know, large images of, of their OCT and everything else to interact with them, the educational type of things that you can do with it, I think really make a big difference than just, you know, connecting in a FaceTime type of, you know, setting and maybe turning the phone around to, you know, show the images. So I think we have to think about if we want a sustainable product and solution, uh, you know, moving forward, focusing on that patient experience with these types of things as well. Um, Zoom is, if you, so if you do the professional uh, Zoom subscription, uh, it comes with a BAA, so it is HIPAA compliant uh, if you do the paid professional version of it. So you just have to make sure you, you do that aspect of things. Obviously, Medicare and CMS has decreased those restrictions, but I think it's important as us, as physicians to 
try our best to use the most HIPAA compliant type of uh, uh, services at this point. And then I'll come back to the scribe question because I, I, I do use scribes uh, for this. I uh, just send the invite to them and I let the patient know that my scribe will be on the call with me. I find, and they, they usually have a Surface Pro that they're doing it either from the office or home when they connect uh, with us. Um, and that way I, I just, uh, they're able to, I'm able to focus just like in the clinic one-on-one -on -one with the patient. And it allows me to just, you know, do that interaction better. It also allows me to see patients fairly quickly. I mean, I, I've, I, I can do 10 to 12 patients in an hour like this with a scribe. So, you know, it, it simulates kind of the time that it would take in clinic to, to get through patients as well. So I think for me in a private practice setting, a scribe is, is nice, but I have a little more flexibility. So that's a John to control, you know, our technicians, you know, and, and when people work. Steve, uh, do you, do you record the calls with the patients and would that be of benefit for a patient to replay that? Do you also invite patients' families to jump on the call if they're in another location? Excellent questions. I do not routinely record uh, the visits. Um, I could see where, yeah, if, if, if you, if that, that is an option, it's an easy option. All you do is press a button on Zoom and then it uh, sends you an MP4, MP4 right at the end of the call that you could pass along. So if a practice or if they saw a, a need to do that, that's, that's a very easy option. Um, you know, going to your second point, what, what was your second question again? Uh, was basically, do you invite the family members yeah. to join the call? So that's a that's an that's an excellent feature that not every video conference or not every video app allows. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, FaceTime that's difficult. Doxy, I think it's difficult as well. But with Zoom, I can invite as many family members or anything else that want to be on the call, and I've done that. I mean, I've been on a I've been on a call with a patient, and they said, "Hey, can I include my my sister who's in healthcare on this?" And I sent her while we were talking, sent her the invite. She popped right up, let her in from the waiting room and had her on the call. So it is an excellent way for us to provide uh, education and just information about, you know, uh, different people's uh, diseases. And that's important because in our clinics, we've restricted any family from coming in. Yeah. So now the, the, the patients that had family coming in with them in the past really are restricted unless that patient needs assistance. And, and that's not that many patients. So this does even allow those patients now to have family members with them to hear about, you know, the, the process, you know, the, the uh, disease and, and, you know, ask questions and, and all that. So I think that is an important aspect to it, especially in this current era where we're not letting family and friends and stuff in. We definitely want to get to this discussion point. Uh, Steve, we'll come back to you on this. Billing and reimbursement, something that's really critical. How do we bill for this? Have you gotten reimbursed? What are some tips and advice for those sorts of things? Yeah, I mean, so the, the benefit is, is that on March 6th, when CMS came out with their uh, regulate, you know, dropping the regulations is, you know, a couple key points, you know, one is that, you know, obviously Medicare patients no longer had to be in underserved or rural areas. So basically any healthcare facility, you know, anywhere or even at home, you know, patients could do audio video calling with patients. Um, you know, we've talked extensively. So that was a big thing when I, when we started rolling this out that I, I worked with our billing departments, you know, constantly over that 
first week uh, before we started seeing patients to reach out to CMS on multiple occasions, Corcoran on multiple occasions, and even the uh, American Academy of Ophthalmology uh, billing. Um, and based on all of our interpretations of the regulations and um, you know, looking forward, you know, we've found that you can bill your standard E&M visit for these. So when you audio video with the patient, uh, we bill the 99213. Uh, it's, I would not bill anything higher than that because often it's going to require dilation. So um, I'm not billing anything higher than that. So I'm sticking to you know, twos and threes, mostly threes for, the, for our type of patients. You, the regulations also change that you can either do it by time or MDM uh, on the decision making. In retina, I think the time tends to be, we're not gonna probably hit the 15, 20 minutes for a level three exam. So we're still going on the MDM um, aspect of things. Um, the other thing was, is initially they had, they had had us uh, potentially doing a place of service of two, which was you know, an interesting aspect because when we first started, it was like, how do we separate this? Because we have an in-office component, which would be a place of service of 11, and then a telemedicine component with a place of service of two. Luckily, within a few weeks, they came back and said that we could um, just use a place of service of 11 until 2021. So that makes it easier. We're not having to do two separate encounters for the two separate locations. Describe regard. place of service. Where does that fit in with everything? Uh, I mean, so place of service was uh, whether it's telemedicine or in office. And because these were a little, these are the, what we call hybrid and they're in the office and in uh, kind of telemedicine, there was some confusion at first from our part. And we we're trying to get clarification about this of whether we needed two encounters uh, for the, you know, for the in office component and another encounter for the telemedicine. At this point, you don't have to worry about that because it's all under place of service 11. They don't even want you to say place of service of two. So the telemedicine aspect of it, obviously we're doc you document in the chart that it was done by telemedicine. There's some things that we can talk about that, that need to be documented from that standpoint. And then from the imaging, you're billing for the imaging just like you would in clinic. So um, most of these patients obviously are gonna have the 92134 for an OCT. Um, and then you have to check with your LCDs and, and MACs regarding unbundling to, to do the images. So you know, some people say, well, I'm getting, Im I need imaging or I need fundus photos for this to do it. So I should be billing it every time. At this point, I wouldn't go in that direction. I would make sure to check with your LCD and MAC to uh, determine whether you can unbundle uh, the photos and the OCT for these type of things. Steve's doing and a then, deep dive in, in acronyms, but I think he just means the billers for everyone else on the <laughs> <laughs> So Steve, you mentioned certain things have to be documented. Briefly, what is it that we need to be documenting in the, in the EHR? What things have to be documented on the exam side of things and, and what, what not? I mean, I think that's, you know, when we, I think first step is, uh, and, and to trace it back is we didn't talk about consent. And I think consent's, you know, an important aspect of this. So um, when we have patients come in to see the technician, we do a written consent with them for the telemedicine visits. And then, so we have a written consent at that point. And then when I talk to them, I verbally consent them for the telemedicine visits at that point as well. Uh, and we document that in the chart. Um, and then 
we document that when the uh, actual audio video was done, so the date of that service, uh, as well as the time of that service. Like I said, we're not billing by time, but we've still gotten in the habit of, uh, you know, putting in the, um, you know, putting in the uh, time as well. Um, and then I think the MDM documentation is relaxed at this point, uh, I would say, but I'm doing it kind of on the standard of what we normally would. Um, you know, I have my technicians either get an anterior segment photo or, or do a quick slit lamp exam to, to um, you know, help, help just identify anything there. And then, you know, obviously I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, documenting it, you know, post your segment by, based on you know just photos, but I'll document in the photos any findings, and then obviously the OCT, and then the, the decision making is going to be the critical component of it. So your standard uh, documentation of your diagnosis and treatment plan, and then going back, obviously doing your you know chief complaint HPI uh, and documenting those aspects of things as well. So does some component of the healthcare team have to actually look at the patient's eye to do this? Good question. Uh, from from what we've found, it, there's there hasn't been any good answer to that of whether yes or no. We we like I said, we have our technician check of vision, of pressure, and then do a you know basic you know make sure there's not you know anything out of the ordinary. I, that being said, I had a patient today that my technician said, "Hey, they they actually have an epi defect, and we didn't get a good image." And I said, "Okay, bring them to clinic the next day." You know, so um, I think having someone look at that, look at, you know, even 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 in a basic standpoint uh, can identify some, you know, out of the normal type of, say, anterior segment findings. John, to that point, I've had colleagues, at least for patients who are unable to come in for imaging or even again earlier on in this crisis when people didn't want to come into the clinic, uh, they were turning to remote vision screening apps that we know are readily available. Now, there's some good ones out there and using that as sort of a surrogate to see if there's been changes in vision. So um, my vision track is one that we, we here know pretty well. I think that was since acquired by Genentech. There's some free ones available though on the, the iPhone app store. Um, one that I use in my practice, I recommend it to partners and colleagues is called Look. Um, it's actually a really good one. And, and, and it works in my experience, somewhat similar to um, uh, MVT in that it's based on shape discrimination. So it, it kind of goes through this exercise where it's, it's making you kind of, you know, the shapes and it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller and it can test near vision it can test distant vision it has an amsler chart built in it as well so i've had some pretty good experience using that asan you mentioned you were in a multi-specialty group are your anterior segment guys using telemedicine and how are your referring doctors reacting to you seeing these patients uh, via telemedicine yeah i think uh, a number of them have a large part out of necessity right we have a number of more older docs, more senior docs in our practice, and they have their own personal concerns about contracting the virus, at least in the community. Um, some of them maybe are, are temporarily, you know, uh, going on uh, absence and, and not working. And, and we want to obviously integrate them back into the practice and they want to be useful and uh, help uh, productivity in the clinic and telemedicine offers a great opportunity for them to do so uh, with these remote visits. Uh, kind of being the point person or quarterbacking for patients to come in for screening and imaging. And, and then a number of times I've, I've been asked then uh, as a interphysician, a consult to then review over images and then dictate, do I think that a patient needs to come in or not as well too. So um, a number of the, the doctors in the group, they, they've been a little bit, I think, slower in the uptake in terms of the hybrid approach. 
Uh, but a, a lot of them really from, from the get-go, our whole department was on board with at least trying the telemedicine, keeping the clinic volumes down, at least while we were going through the initial surge with COVID. Steve, I'll come back to you here and ask a little more specifically about insurance companies and Medicaid. Are you being paid by private insurance or do you have to go and negotiate with each insurance uh, contractor um, and revise your contracts to do telemedicine? It's a good question. Uh, a lot of what we've been doing initially is Medicare. Um, we have been doing some Medicaid as well. And you know, so far we've not run into any issues with uh, the coding and billing process. And we've already been through that first cycle with patients and we, we're getting paid without any uh, significant, you know, hangups or issues. So I can say, you know, so far we're appropriately documenting and coding and billing for these visits and getting paid already at this point, uh, already going through the cycle. Regarding private insurers, um, you know, that's something that's locally determined. So we are reaching out. Uh, I have my billing staff reach out to, you know, our uh, bigger players, the United Healthcare, the Cigna's, uh, the Blue Cross Blue Shields to uh, talk to them about, you know, these types of issues. And it's going to be locally dependent based on your, your carrier and your region. So I think that for Medicare and Medicaid, you know, I don't think you'll have an issue at this point. But before starting it on private payers, you should talk to your, your, local, your local reps in that regard, just to make sure that you know, they're going to cover it on a like-for-like -like basis. What about supplements? Are supplemental insurances paying the 20% or whatnot? So from what we've seen so far, we are seeing it. Um, obviously, one thing we didn't touch on is, is you know, the copay aspect of things. So uh, Medicare has kind of told us to you know not collect you know copays during COVID-19 for some of this so you know it's it's one thing to kind of um, you know kind of pay attention to because at this point a lot of them were not necessarily collecting those copays because of you know some of the uh, recent regulations saying that you know we should you know not necessarily be collecting those. Now is that only for telemedicine patients or for patients across the board? You know, I think that that's an excellent question that, um, you know, that you know, I don't have a great answer to right now. Um, you know, so I think, you know, as we get more experience with this, we'll, we'll, we'll have a more, you know, complete picture there. John, I wanted to come to you. You do a lot of training of fellows uh, in surgery. Is there a role for telemedicine in surgery? And if so, how? Yeah, I, mean, I think uh, we're trying to leverage telemedicine in general everywhere, but surgery is with ingenuity and sort of high-res uh, 3D technology. We have piloted this uh, last year with Verizon over the 5G, kind of having a telesurgery setup where you could proctor uh, sort of other surgeons or kind of help do surgery. The robotics and, and such is not quite there yet where we're able to operate on a patient at another location, but I think uh, if you think about exp exp spreading expertise and looking at telesurgery options that, that may be applicable uh, in general to try to reduce your exposure to the patient uh, or help, help other more or less experienced surgeons. Training in general has been really disrupted by this. Uh, that's, there's no doubt. Uh, I think it's, the biggest impact has really been to the residency program where this is really the time of the year where they're uh, getting a lot of cataract surgery volume. Basically, all cataract surgeries have been canceled for the last uh, – two months. 
they've also been sort of pulled from all of their regular clinical rotations in order to staff uh, kind of consolidate into two different teams. So one team is off for a week, the other's on, and they, they really are just focusing more on emergency patients and consults. So I think teaching has been significantly opted, uh, affected. There has been more e-learning. There's a lot of Zoom uh, conferences, a lot of case conferences. Faculty in general have more time for those type of events. So there's been more lectures and we've, we've developed some sort of across New England platforms to get some really good lecture material for them. Uh, retinal fellows, I think in general, are still doing pretty well. We actually have seen an increase in retinal detachment referrals. So we're still operating on, um, on call last week. I did about 15 to to 20, uh, 15 or so cases uh, from call. And um, so things are still pretty busy and they're still, they're still participating in those cases uh, for sure. But I think that the volume is different. They're not, we're not booking membrane peels uh, quite yet or macular holes. So a lot of those types of surgeries are less, but it did happen at a time of the year when most fellows are very competent and kind of ready to graduate and, and move on to the next stage of their career. So uh, that was one uh, silver lining of the timing. So Steve, and this is a little bit off topic, but you had an interesting take. We've talked about ingenuity at length uh, personally. You view ingenuity as a bit of a PPE. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I think you know, John brings up a couple of the points is obviously ingenuity allows you to potentially kind of teleconference videos and things to people outside the room. So you can use it definitely from an education standpoint. But, you know, and Asan, you know, and John and I have talked a lot about this where, you know, I've been using ingenuity for over two years now and for all the other benefits that we won't get into. But as we've seen the increased uh, potential risk in the operating room and for ENT anesthesia and ophthalmology are the three highest risk specialties for you know COVID-19 because we're at towards the head of the bed we're close to patient's face and mouse for an extended period of time um, so inherently we're kind of one of the higher risk specialties for uh, surgery and if you're not getting COVID-19 testing prior um, obviously there could be asymptomatic patients that that you, you may be exposed to. So there's been a few of us kind of kind of pushing this enhanced surgical PPE or almost like a surgical PPE, PPE plus, where, you know, in addition to, you know, maybe an N95 in the operating room, um, you know, we're starting to think about how ingenuity can actually enhance our safety in the operating room. So an example I, I would talk about is, you know, it allows me to wear a surgical mask, either one that I've just modified with a eye slit and then wear the 3D glasses underneath, or even a prototype we're looking at with a surgical face mask with, um, you know, with the 3D film overlying it. So, you know, having been able to uh, wear a full, full face shield as well. And then, you know, obviously you're sitting a little farther back um, with the ingenuity, so you're not uh, kind of hunched over the microscope. Uh, and then any fellows or residents or assistants aren't, you know, looking through the side scope. They're going to be farther back as well so that we can, you know, what we call surgical distance a little bit more in that regard. And then, you know, I think some of us are also looking at some additional type of other PPE that may even enhance more um, our, our safety in there. So, I think ingenuity has really, you know, added to my comfort in the operating room as, you know, I feel like I'm able to wear the appropriate PPE while still doing my cases. And then uh, anybody else that's going to be observing the cases, if they're not outside the room, they can be farther back from the screen. So I think it's, you know, something to talk of, start a conversation about 
uh, especially in those of us that are using it as we move into this, you know, COVID-19 uh, elective case era uh, and trying to protect ourselves. Yeah, I think that holy grail of having that ability to do and, and broadcast uh, via telemedicine your surgeries to anyone that's in retina that wants to watch or be able to observe other people operate is just the holy grail of training. John, a question off of Facebook, um, mainly for you because you train residents and fellows. Do you include residents and fellows in some of those tele-appointments? That seems like a very good way for residents and fellows to kind of look in and see how you evaluate patients and how you talk to patients and those sorts of things. Are you using it in that fashion? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question. It's, uh, it's timely because it's basically something that we are currently trying to roll out and we've offered to the fellows to participate. I mean, they're handling a ton of phone calls about patients trying to reschedule or seek alternative treatment plans and trying to involve them in, in these sort of virtual visits is something I'm hoping to do soon. We've not quite done it yet. Uh, we do have a tele-appointment program for the residents where they're sort of pre-screening patients that might otherwise come to the emergency room, but I'm not overseeing them necessarily on that platform. But I think that this, as I told, some of the fellows are about to graduate. I mean, this is probably something as they start their practices this summer and, and fall, this is very likely the new normal to, to go back to that buzzword. So I think getting experience with these types of platforms and these types of visits is part of an important part of their education uh, before they wrap up. Asan, let's go to you for just some closing thoughts and comments. What are, what are just still a couple of things of advice for those of us that aren't using telemedicine right now that we need to know as we get into this? It, there's a, a common saying we hear that, uh, you know, adversity maybe helps bring about opportunity or change or innovation. I think it's, it's so relevant for our field right now. Uh, we think about our practices, in particular retina, we have an exquisitely sensitive, susceptible patient population. You know, the majority of our patients are elderly patients getting injections for macular degeneration. We know they are predisposed potential to infection, and there's a substantial portion of our practices that are diabetic patients who are also immunocompromised that we're worried about susceptibility to infection. So a lot of the innovation that is that is coming out and, and the push for telemedicine, the number one reason for this is, is really out of a desire to protect our patients while balancing their care needs. You know, it's not that we just want people to just stop getting eye care because we knew that would be devastating for the types of patients that we take care of. So it's balancing safety together uh, with the need to continue their care and get the best care possible. And I think that's where this opportunity presents itself. And really retina, when I think about other fields of medicine, like we really have this unique opportunity where we hit on all the three phases of telemedicine. That's why we talk about hybridized tele-eye care. There's three components of telemedicine, right? We have this opportunity for store and forward, which we talk about these systems where a patient comes in, gets an image stored on a system, gets interpreted remotely and, and carries forward. There's this opportunity for real-time interaction with the physician like you're standard, you know, teledoc or MD live where you get on the phone and talk to, or the video call and talk to the doctor. And then again, unique to our field is, is this opportunity for home monitoring. We have it with some of the home monitoring vision apps, but really, I think looking forward this, this potential there for home OCT, it's, it's right around the corner for us. And I think it's going to play a role to come, but think about it. There's this perfect storm that's brewing in our field to say, Hey, we had this adversity, this terrible thing that's happened. We're not even through the woods yet. And I think most of us are anticipating there's going to be a second surge coming here. Uh, thank God that at least we haven't been severely affected 
in terms of our personal health, our family's health, et cetera. Um, but there's the opportunity to, well, let's think about how are we providing care to all the people that we care for and to make sure they continue to get good care while staying as safe as possible moving forward. And I think that's the answer here is telemedicine. John, I'll come to you. Um, closing remarks. And where do you think telemedicine is at a year from now in the academic environment? Yeah, I think uh, it's very likely that it will be completely different than what we what we see now. I mean, I think we're starting to see slow buy-in, and I think as people increase their flexibility and kind of awareness about this uh, opportunity to take care of their patients in a safer a safer uh, way and with more social distancing, there really should be more buy-in in these larger centers. Uh, I guess that's my kind of message is just to try to you know, don't get discouraged or frustrated with there definitely will be some roadblocks and, and some some kinks and, and uh, clunky visits in the first couple of weeks. And I, I saw that in my own experience, but I think it's really taken off in weeks three and four. And I've seen some really high uh, remarks from patients. I think we're really able to help a lot more people uh, in a different way with this uh, type of platform. So I'm excited about the future. And Steve, to close us out, words of advice for practices, retina practices looking to implement telemedicine. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd like to reiterate kind of what Asan and John have said in that, you know, I think with every crisis does bring opportunity. And we've been seeing, you know, this glacier pace of telemedicine. And, you know, I proposed some of these solutions over a year ago to start to consider in our practice. And you know, it wasn't the time yet, but it's funny that right as this hit, we proposed it again, right at, you know, March 6th timeframe. It was like, yes, we should do this. You know, it's like, you know, there was a switch that happened. And I think we're going to see that across the country that people are going to start adopting this because like Asan and John said, it, it's, it's, it's focused on the, our safety of our patients. You know, that's the primary driver right now. The benefit to us now is that the reimbursements are like for like. So, you know, not only are we able to provide potentially, you know, a safer or, you know, a, an experience that's going to be more efficient and safe for the right type of patients, while also getting paid, you know, similarly as if they're in the office. Um, and then, you know, second, you know, we don't know how long COVID-19 is going to go on for, you know, it's like Asan said, you know, there's going to be probably waves of this, you know, we're hopeful there's going to be a vaccine in 12 to 18 months, but you know, what if there's not? And what if this does go on for longer uh, before you know, we potentially have herd immunity or something else? But, you know, this, this, this may not go, we may not go back to the old way, you know, in a few months. You know, this may be a more protracted, prolonged, uh, you know, issue that we deal with. And so we need to all be resilient. And then we have to think innovatively and think differently of how can we take the old and bring it to the new with different workflows and processes and things like that. And, and to last point to reiterate what John said is that, you know, instituting this is not easy. You know, I would be lying if I said we just got this up and going and there's no kink, there's no, you know, hurdles or roadblocks or any, you know, headaches with it. Um, I feel like, you know, after, you know, six or eight weeks of this and, you know, a couple hundred patients, we've, we're starting to get it, you know, more, more down pat. And so I would say that, you know, the special sauce really comes down to the workflows and processes across the board. You know, how you're, you're handling the, the tele-technicians, the tele-visits for the doctor, how you're scheduling that for each individual doctor. Um, what are your protocols to get up to get the remote access viewing up to speed? 
How do you do the video conferencing? What do you use? I mean, there's just, you know, so many parts to it that we've all navigated and, and put into practice. And, you know, I think it's, it's important for us as a retina community to really work together on, on modifying and making these protocols the best we can to, you know, have a more, um, you know, more standardized approach potentially to this so that we can, you know, across the board provide similar care, you know, across the world even. Well, I think as all of you who've tuned in can see, this is just an incredible topic that is in its infancy, but something that I think has the ability to dramatically change the face of our practice at a time when we need this change really more than ever. And so as has been alluded to here uh, by Hassan, it's forcing a change that we really need to undergo. I want to thank you, Steve, John, and Hassan for joining me tonight. And I want to thank all of you who've watched and listened. Uh, tune in next Tuesday for another episode of New Retina Radio. Thank you and stay safe. Bryn Mawr Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson Johnson Vision, Aerie, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Bryn Mawr Communications LLC, here in BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, in this webcast podcast.